If you're listening to this podcast for the first time, please know that we are a comedy podcast. We are not professional comedians. Well, I am. (laughs) See? I just made a laugh. We use profanity. Yes. I do season my language very often. And we never claim to be an original crime podcast. No. We cover crimes that have happened in Florida. Clearly. Because the only original crime that there would be would be me killing someone. So we're going to be offensive. But the one thing we're never going to do is talk shit about the victims. Exactly. Hi, and welcome to Freshly Squeezed True Crime. A Florida-only true crime comedy podcast. Hey, Sue Haley. Hi, Renee. So today we're heading back to Key West in the 1930s and talking about the story of Count Von Kozel and his mummy bride. Not creepy at all. Oh, it gets creepier. <laughs> in 1930, Carl Tonsler, a.k.a. Count Von Kozel, met a woman half his age and became obsessed with her. After her death, he stole her body and lived with her for seven years. Okay, well, episode over. Good night. Bye. I'm not creating this one like it's mysterious, and I'll tell you why. In 1947, he published his account of the story. Most of what is usually told surrounding this story is taken from his own writings, but I call BS. He's a known liar. He wrote the story to make himself seem like the good guy years after the fact. Unfortunately, there's not a lot known about the actual facts, but I'm going to give them to you the best I can, along with Carl's outrageous story. You see, I fully believe Carl Tonsler was a necrophiliac and that he stole Elena's body simply to preserve it so that he could be with her. She had spurned him in life, and he was able to get the final say. After reading his accounts and most of the newspapers back in the day, many people believe this is a love story. It's not. I'm telling you this now because you'll see, especially towards the end, that even Carl's own statements changed from just wanting to preserve her to having it done all for a great love. I got a lot of information from some books that I'll link to on our website. One is Carl's bullshit memoirs, and while I don't recommend it as 100% factual, it was still really interesting to read the writings of a man so obsessed that it almost sounded as if he believed his own story. Oh, he was in love. He was not. This is not a love story, and that's the angle so many people go for with this one. The other two books were from authors that did a lot of research and interviewed people that even knew Carl and Elena. And finally, before I start, trigger warning. There's a lot of abuse of a corpse in this episode, and I don't hold back with the descriptions that I found online. All right, let's go. Carl Tonsler was born in Dresden, Saxony, Germany on February 8th, 1877. One source said that he most likely grew up in a modest townhouse, and it's highly possible that he spent time in a Catholic boys' dormitory. Another source said he was the son of poor people with only the beginnings of an education. There's also some evidence that he was in the German army in the 20s. His memoirs mention none of these things. Carl said that he was nobility and grew up in a castle out in the country. In some sources, the castle was simply named Via Cosel, while in others, it was called Kasselschloss. Kasselschloss. I can't. Kasselschloss. That sounds horrible. I don't know German. It doesn't even sound fancy. It was apparently fancy. (laughs) It doesn't sound like it. His mother told him that the castle had been haunted for two centuries by the Countess Anna Cosell, who died in 1765. She was known as the white woman, and he had visions of a beautiful girl in a white dress when he was 12. Okay, well. Now, this is the first of many times that I'm going to interrupt my own story. 
It happens a lot. (laughs) I'm going to excuse myself for a second. It happens so much. So he was born in 1877. The ghost that had been haunting the castle was born in 1765. His mother said she had been haunting the castle for two centuries. The difference between those two years is one century, not two. Everybody's math is different. I know, but (laughs) Carl later says like he has a degree in mathematics. And and so I poke fun at his math a lot in this episode. (laughs) Just saying. We're not mathematicians. He said he was. A family member who was later interviewed said that none of this was true. The family had no ties to the Kozel family. Yes, there was a noble family by that name, and yes, the castle existed, but Carl was not a part of any of it. This guy's a hater. He's a hater because he, he, that's the not family his story. member? Yeah. After this story, I'm a fan of anybody that knocks down Carl. <laughs> I'm a fan of this mysterious family member. Okay. He's a hater. <laughs> Carl said that as a young boy, he had no interest in family history or ghost stories. He was more interested in researching and experimenting in things like electricity, chemicals, astronomy, and flying machines. He would test out his experiments in public, but was so uncomfortable by attention of the females watching him that he switched his schedule to doing his experiments after midnight. Okay. You're going to have to listen to a lot of the sarcasm in my tone with this one to see, like, (laughs) which are his stories and which are not. Enter sarcasm here. Enter sarcasm everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) He told the story of the time that he had built a pair of wings and a tail from bamboo sticks and covered them with silk. He chose a small hill in the park, jumped off, and practiced gliding through the air. While he did this at night, nearby dogs would bark at the sight of a big shadow flying in the moonlight. It's Batman. He thought he was. Since the small hill he had chosen to jump off of was also the grave of an ancient hero... The farmers of the nearby village started telling tales of how at night a spirit would appear from the grave and fly off. Sweet Jesus. But then his father told him a story about how another man had flown around in the sky and a hunter had mistaken him from a bird and shot him down. What a fucking dad, huh? Well, Carl didn't want to get shot down, so he stopped his <laughs> flying man experiments after that. And that's why today we, we don't have flying men because Carl stopped <laughs> the experiments. This guy's so full of it. Everything starts and ends with him. It does. You'll see this. You'll see that, like, the world would have been better off if Carl kept all of his experiments. Gosh. I know. Anna Casanova. All the girls staring at him. I know. He also spent hours painting and sculpturing and would practice fencing as exercise. He enjoyed fencing because it was a chivalrous art that required the perfect coordination of mind and muscle. Bullshit. (laughs) I can't. I can't say that. Are we going to make it through this episode? I don't think so. My word. I wish the microphone would pick up the rolling of my eyes. (laughs) Enter. I roll here. He claimed to have gone to the University at Leipzig, where at the age of 24, he graduated with nine degrees. Damn, that beats my two, but okay. Right. So every newspaper quotes this later because it's one of those things where one quotes it and they all assume somebody did some research. Yeah. He was especially proud of how he graduated at a mere 24 when the rest of his classmates were 26. Dummies. He said he had degrees in philosophy, mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, psychology, music, painting, and the zoology. (laughs) A master of arts in medicine. Not zoology? No, but he claimed to have graduated with honors in all nine of those. Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. And while not holding additional degrees in the subjects, he also passed metaphysics, 
engineering, astronomy, and physiology. Duh, easy. There's no proof of any of these degrees or that he even attended the college. So Enter eye roll here. Right. So I looked up on the University of Leipzig's website because I'm like, could this have even been possible? So you can apply for a maximum of two master's programs at once. And you must already have a degree before applying to the master's program. That's usually how it works. It is. And yes, this is modern day information. But since it's fun to make fun of Carl... (laughs) (laughs) We're going with the modern day information because that's what I could find. So he said that he had a master's in arts in medicine, but didn't say which type of degree he held in the others. I'd assume if we asked him, he'd say they were all masters. Of course. Of course. Doctorals. But even for the sake of argument, let's say he just had an undergrad in everything except for this one master of PhDs across the board. So if he did two programs at a time, it would take five times for him to get the total of nine degrees. At two years of study each, that would have been 10 years to get the nine undergraduate degrees. Because that's math. Right. If he went for the one that was a master's first, like he could have been doing it at the same time. So 10 years, which means basically he would have started college at the age of 14 and had been smart enough to get honors in all of these classes at that age. I don't see the problem. Okay. You didn't? I'm going to, at this point, with you're a Carl fan and (laughs) I'm not happy with, I'm going to be like, at you this whole i know i just like seeing you angry so angry with this. i know you are (laughs) so anyway back to carl's story so one night while he was in college he said that he was sitting at his desk at home you know in the castle yes doing research when all of a sudden one by one everything on his desk started rising up and falling to the floor the activity kept increasing until just about everything in the room had moved up and down at one point He explained that because he's a researcher at heart, he wasn't alarmed at all. But he was just watching the experience and observing it the same way he would one of his own experiments. But then when his own scientific equipment started to break, he started getting mad. That's where he drew the fucking line. He did. So he interrupted the haunting by saying, what is the idea of all this destruction? Why don't you tell me in a more civilized way? And of course, everything stopped and returned to normal. A couple nights later, he was awakened in his room at 2 a.m. And there were two women standing by his bed. They were ghostly appearances. Sassy. He recognized the countess from a portrait he had seen. She took the younger woman by the hand and told him, Look, Carl, I have brought you the bride who you will someday meet. Then the woman disappeared and he felt happy as he fell back asleep. After his supposed college years, he decided to travel the world. He said that about a decade before the outbreak of the First World War, he traveled from continent to continent. At some point, he said he purchased a coconut plantation on an island as large as Key West near the equator and claimed it was near the spot where Amelia Earhart went down. Because, you know, everybody Uh, knows where Amelia Earhart went down. Right. Pulled by a strange and irrepressible urge to head east, he visited Campo Santo, a famous cemetery in Genoa, Italy. This is where he came across a marble statue of the promised bride from his vision. He learned that her name was Elena and that she had been 22 when she died. Now, spoiler, the woman he later becomes obsessed with is named Elena, and she's 22 when she dies. It's all coming together. Remember, he wrote all of his own memoirs, I think, seven years after he was arrested for this. So, Mm -hmm. As if under a spell in front of the statue, he started saying her name over and over again. Elena, Elena. Elena, and suddenly the spirit of his bride detached herself from the face of the statue and walked off into the crowd. He looked for her, but he couldn't find her. She just walked Uh, away from him. Mm -hmm. 
He claimed that he'd also made his way to New York and was held at Ellis Island for days until his sister, who was living in New Jersey at the time, was able to pay a $20,000 bond for his admittance into the United States. He stayed in New York for about a year, but left because New York was colder than Germany, he got sick with severe bronchitis, and he wanted to go back to Germany to see his ailing mother. Punk. Right. So I had never heard of immigrants paying for entry into the U.S. before. So you, you know I looked it up. some palms, you know. No, I looked it up. So it's all about who you know and who you pay. Of course, it's not true. Also, my online inflation calculator only goes back to like 1913. But 20K in 1913 is over $600,000 today. So this is probably like early 1900s that he's talking about. His sister bringing over like half a million in cash for him to fucking enter the U.S. It's yeah. like, come on, that's stupid. In a garbage bag. Right. Finally, after all those years of traveling, he settled down in Sydney, Australia, 13 years before the start of World War One. Now, remember I said he started traveling 10 years before the start of World War One. <laughs> so, yeah. So, we're those, going backwards in time. Okay. Yep. So, he decided to end his traveling and settle down three years before he even left home. <laughs> he was... He was in a DeLorean. He travels back in time. Exactly what I wrote here. Look, it says, perhaps one of Carl's many experiments was a time machine. (laughs) Damn. And so his stories conflict. Like, did he go to New York and then leave to go back to Germany, home to his mother? Or did he not even go to America? Did he go to just Australia? Like, it's all BS. Oh, okay. And there's, there's some proof that it's all BS. But anyway. He said that the Australian government employed him as a civil electrical engineer and an x-ray expert. He was making a really good salary and described an absolutely lovely home that he lived in. This home, he later says, has over 100 windows. So you can imagine the size of this home. It's a lot of fucking curtains. He owned a 125-foot diesel-powered yacht that he named the Aisha. He named the yacht after meeting a queen by that name from the Cocos Islands who would often come visit him in Australia. Of course. You know, when you settle down in Australia, queens start making their ways to you. That's what I'm waiting for. As soon as I retire. She'll come. In his free time, he worked on his experiments and became a licensed pilot. A new kind of boat, a new kind of plane, you name it, he's probably invented it. He talked at length about a seaplane he was building with a 110-foot wingspan and two 500-horsepower diesel engines. Where the fuck are you going to park that shit? Well, not only that, but according to the source I read this in, there was absolutely no way a plane fitting his descriptions would fly because the engines would have made the plane way too heavy. Yeah. On May 2nd, 1910, and then I interrupted my story again to say, (laughs) okay, let's stop for a second. He settled down in Australia 13 years before the start of World War I, right? So it would have been 1901 when he settled down in Australia. So he'd be 24, which was the exact age he graduated with the nine degrees from one of the world's best colleges. That's right. Okay. So then nine years later, because it's now 1910, he's still living in Australia. Yes. So there's no traveling years. According to his own math, it wouldn't have been possible. I mean, it all gets jumbled up. It's when you live this kind of, you know, hustle and bustle mm-hmm. lifestyle, you just can't keep track of all the wonderful things that I'm doing. Sure. It, but in his memoirs, he's like going step by step and it's it does not add up. So anyway, back to this. On May 2nd, 1910, he saw the vision of a woman moving through his home. That's it. That- <laughs> Two years- <laughs> that was all he wrote. He lost his train of thought. He had to go build something. He was building a story. 
I'm like, you know what I just realized? Do hmm. you remember pop-up video from VH1? I don't remember pop-up So they would video. play like a music video. Remember mm-hmm. when MTV and VH1 used to play music videos? And then they would have like little bubbles. And in the little bubbles, like little factoids of the video or of the bands, of the group. Well, this episode is kind of like a pop-up video. And you're doing it all by yourself. Because you keep sidebarring with little tits and tats of math <laughs> and extra information. <laughs> They do that in true crime stuff too, where they pop up like a exactly yeah. So you your own. Po- this is the pop up version episode. I should make a YouTube video. <laughs> All right. Two years later, on March seventh, nineteen twelve, she returned. This time, he spoke to her and he embraced her. He said that feeling her arms around him was divine bliss. Yeah, where the fuck she's been for the past two years? I don't know, but this time she ended up staying with him for seven days. Oh. She followed his every step while he was home, and they developed a wonderful incorporeal love for each other. Like the ring. She didn't speak or tell him her name, so he called her Aisha. Remember the name of the ship and the queen that visited him? At the end of these seven days, she suddenly disappeared again. Gotta go. He was heartbroken and suffered from mental depression over it. The depression placed him in a hospital where he stayed for more than three months, unconscious most of the time because he was also suffering from both typhoid fever and malaria. Typhoid Mary got a hold of him? Mm-hmm. And malaria. Nice. After he recovered, he received news that his father had gone into a coma on March 7th, 1912 at 7 p.m., the exact date and time his bride appeared, and that his father had died on March 10th at 7 p.m. on the exact day and hour that she disappeared. All right. Here's again. I put pop my up video. I could put my pop ups in parentheses. Every time I get to parentheses, I'm like, okay. <laughs> I knew where I'd be interrupting myself. All right. So there's a lot to rip apart with this one. Here we go. First of all, let's get this sickness out of the way. This is like one of those Russian nesting dolls. I love it. So who knows if he really got sick? When I first read this, I thought it was an outrageous claim that he got both typhoid fever and malaria yes. at the same time. Happens all the time. Well, I did some research, and apparently it does. Like 15% of the people that get it get both of them at the same time. You didn't know I was, a, I was also a physician? I didn't know okay. that. Malaria and typhoid fever were both rampant during World War I. And yes, it was common for people to get it at the same time. So I know that this isn't actually World War I time, but it's a few years before, so I took yeah. that research because it was easier to find. Typhoid fever was fatal in about 10% of the cases during that time. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't super deadly. But malaria was. Well, no. But here's the fun fact about malaria that I learned. (laughs) Your survivability rate, is that a word? Yes. Okay, it is now if it's not. Scrabble cheater. The fatality rate of malaria actually depended on which side of the war you were on. What the fuck? I mean, difference in healthcare, I guess. But listen to this. Our side wins. Shocker. (laughs) The Allied troops' death rate was 0.63%. So about one in every 200 um, infected troops died. On the other hand, if you were one of the Axis troops, that death rate was 4.15%. So eight in every 200 infected died. So you definitely want to be on the allied side of the war. You, you want to be on the right side of history. You do. For more reasons than one. <laughs> Again, who knows if Carl got sick, but it wasn't as outrageous of the claim as I had hoped when I went on my side tangent, which disappointed me. <laughs> <laughs> Next, he had called her Aisha. Why? Jesus Christ. 
If he learned during his travels that her name was Elena, why give her a different name? Also, another spoiler here, he later named his daughter Aisha. So it seems really gross to me that this spirit he's in love with had the same name. Exactly. And finally, let's talk math again. This is my favorite part of making fun of the mathematician. You know, not for nothing, but you know we can't stand math. He claimed over and over in several places in his memoirs, in several different writings, that she was with him for seven days. Yes. He tells us that she arrives on March 7th. Yes. And leaves on March 10th. That's seven days. Now, we make fun of Florida math a lot, but apparently we got nothing on the Germans. Because to Carl, 10 minus 7 is 7. It's not? It's 3. Well, I mean. In Florida. I don't, okay. I've never been to Germany, so I don't know what it is there. Well, when we go visit, we'll figure it out. That's the first thing that we'll ask when we land. I actually don't think the Germans even want to claim this guy after everything that (laughs) happened. So I've heard Germany is a great place nowadays, by the way. Mm. I've, I've talked to some people that are from, like, I'm not making fun of Germany. But I don't think they want to claim this guy either. Moving on. In 1914, the First World War began. Now, he claimed because he was a British subject in the King's service and employed by the Australian government, he was placed into an internment camp for his own protection. Yes. Right. We need him. Again, he wasn't British. He was German. And I highly doubt he was ever even employed by the Australian government. Oh, ye of little faith. But the best any historian can actually tell, he was most likely serving in the German army during this time and that he was captured. He was then sent to Australia for the first time strictly because he was a prisoner of war and placed in a concentration camp. Okay. Either way, he says he was in the Trial Bay concentration camp for four years. In 1939, again, years after he's caught with his mummy bride, he wrote a true story article for the Rosicution Digest about his time in this camp. In it, he says he had been traveling from India to Australia with the intention of then going to the South Sea Islands. But when he got to Australia, he decided to stay. He bought property, boats, an organ, an island in the Pacific. And he was in the middle of building his seaplane when the war broke out and he was moved to Trial Bay. He told I don't see the problem. He told the story about how the prison would open its gates during the day and allow them their freedom, as long as they were all back inside the camp in the evening. Inside the prison, there were institutions like a college and a small university and a theater and an orchestra. He would use his free time moving around the rocky cliffs along the seashore, and he would collect wooden planks washed up from shipwrecks, and he ended up building himself a small house up on the rocks above the waterline. Now, all of this seemed really far-fetched to me because my ideas of what a concentration camp is like is from the stories of World War II. So, of course, you know, I looked up Trial Bay, and sure enough, the way he described it was true. In World War I, they had some concentration camps where there was swimming, tennis, theater, arts and crafts, things like that. And prisoners did have a lot of freedom when they weren't working. Yeah. Plus, when they were working, they were paid for it. So, there you go. Yeah. I, I just, I'm like, it's a concentration camp. Like, I'm World War II concentration camp images, and I'm like, this can't be true. But it was. Who knows about his portions being true now? Because <laughs> near the beach on one of his excursions, he found a large red cedar log, and he decided he was going to create an organ out of this log. The tools he had on him consisted of a pocket knife, a razor from his shaving kit, and a file. There was an old railway line nearby, And he was able to get a strip of metal just big enough from that for him to form some more small tools with. 
So he built a small fire among the rocks and laying the piece of metal in it, he was able to hammer and chisel and carve the tools he wanted out of this strip of metal. So he made a drill, a screwdriver, all sorts of chisels, carving tools, all this shit. And fortunately for the stuff that he didn't have, like the cross-cut saw he needed, the military store from the concentration camp let him borrow Absolutely. it. Of course. He was also lucky enough to find some old steel cables among the rocks. And during another search, he found copper wire and brass sheathing and brass screws. <laughs> he lacked for nothing That's in this right. concentration camp. What he didn't have inside the camp, he found in the rocks yes. outside of it. He became good friends with Buddhist priests, like the famous Nyantalakatha Thera, who helped him with his project. And you know I looked this up too, because this is a super famous Buddhist priest, apparently. The fact that they became friends is true. So in Nyantaloka Mahathira's own biography, <laughs> sorry. Can we give her a nickname? You should see, I think it's a dude because he's a Buddhist priest, but I, you should see the way it's written. He told the story of how he, Carl, and another man named Vapo had secretly constructed a large boat made of canvas with a sail they made out of their own yellow robes. They had planned to escape, but while they were still working out the details of how to get over the prison camp walls at night, the war ended and they were set free. Okay. So, like, this part at least was true because we have somebody else's own account who was a famous person, so why would they lie? But anyway, back to this organ. <laughs> There was a major setback when, after a storm, Carl's small house on the rocks was destroyed, which, you know, is why we can't see it today. Mm -hmm. While he waited for the sea to calm down, he found a cave, and he went and made friends with, with cats in the wild and waited in this cave with them, which is where he ended up storing what he later built, which was a two-masted sailing boat complete with a hand propeller, navigation instruments, charts and provisions enter i roll here right because you heard our buddhist priest who was like it was a boat and the canvas was made out of our robes yes and carl's version is like my boat had a hand propeller navigation instruments like come on dude <laughs> <sighs> we can agree there was a boat you're gonna have That's a seizure as many times as you roll your eyes in this episode i think so so when the war ended in 1918, he was lucky enough to find an old piano case. Of course. He took his organ that he had built apart enough so that it would fit into this case. But it was so heavy that six men had to help move it. No shit. There was a ship that was taking them out of Australia. And luckily, there was enough room on the prisoner of war ship sure. for six men to help him load this onto the ship. It is of the utmost importance that we get this on that ship. Mm -hmm. They had to take other items off That's of the right. ship because it was too heavy. Fuck food. The ship went to the prisoner's exchange in Holland. He brought his organ with him home to Germany. And then again, when he traveled to Florida years later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It wasn't listed among the inventory. Mm. In his, there were other organs, but not this one. Okay. Ew. Oh, yeah. His inventory, in the end, there were organs everywhere. He was oh. obsessed. Thank you. And none of them worked. As for his own home in Australia, what happened to this mysterious building? Yeah. While he was kept at Trial Bay, he said that people broke into his home about a hundred times. Those fuckers. 
A hundred times. That's right. He knew. Yes. And they took whatever they wanted. There were a hundred windows on his home and they were all broken. That's how they got in. One window at a time. Mm-hmm. Each each time somebody broke a new window. A yes. hundred windows, a hundred break-ins. Exactly. That's how he knew. That's how he knew. Duh. Nobody's going to use the same broken window. No. A fresh one. You kidding? His library, all of his documents, his collections of diamonds, emeralds, and opals were all stolen. He said that the ministry acknowledged his claim that the damage amounted to about 6,000 pounds sterling, which today would be, again, over $600,000. But even though his claim was acknowledged, they refused to pay him for it. Yeah, well, you know, you didn't pay those premiums that month. So later on when he does, like, job interviews and he's trying to get away with his nine degrees, like, this is where he'll talk about his documents being stolen so he can't prove his college degrees. Mm -hmm. And heaven forbid we would contact the institution... I, you know, no, long no. distance in the 1900s. Oh my, who has money for that? All right. So Carl doesn't write anything about what happened from the time he returned home in Germany until he decided to leave for America. But he was home in Germany for eight years. <laughs> Nothing happened in eight years? Nothing he wrote about. Okay. He most likely did work as a mechanic. However, he claimed that he was an engineer and had once patented an engineering device. He wouldn't go into detail about what the device actually did. That's right. But I he don't want a, you to steal it. No. But he had a whole story about how someone did try to steal the patent. See? And he hired lawyers, and the lawyers weren't able to win his case. No, because they're dumb. No. So he took the case to court himself, and he won. But, and he was so successful that the German government bought the patent from him. See? If only Ted Bundy had learned from him. So... Carl, like, constantly talks about how fucking, how rich he was. And brilliant. And brilliant, of course. And good looking. I, I don't Fuck. think he ever said that. Hello, Casanova. All the girls were looking he had at him. He one of those, they call it a Van Dyke beard that, like, results in, like, the pointy chin thing. <sighs> like a, no. I could have done without that. You know how I feel about certain people's facial hair. I didn't know that. He'd also claim that he owned and operated a large, successful machine shop and that he was receiving a monthly check from the income. Okay, so let's remember that this is war-torn Germany. They had just lost the fucking war. (laughs) I highly doubt that some random machine shop is doing so well that they're sending him income checks once he moves. It's the one. Okay. He himself described the Germany he left behind as being so unsafe that people were robbing the clothes off of people's backs in the streets. Can you imagine? There you are going to work and somebody just strips your ass naked. I mean, he's successful. He didn't say it ever happened to him. I guess he was too successful to be robbed. No, absolutely. He knows Kung Fu. (laughs) Third degree black belt. You know, he never claimed, he never wrote that. But I bet he did. I bet you if you asked him, he said yes. I mean, he did no fencing. I mean, exactly. Because mm-hmm. he's classy. He's super classy, this guy. <laughs> In 1921, he married Doris Schaefer. His marriage certificate had his full name as George Carl Tonsler. Their first daughter, Aisha Tonsler, was born in 1922. And their second daughter, Krista Tonsler, was born in 1924. And again, Alicia was the name he gave a spirit bride when she stayed with him for those three to seven days. Gross. He claimed that his warlike, quarrelsome wife divorced him and that he hadn't heard from any of them since he left Germany. Bitch. On February 6, 1926, Carl left for America. Before leaving, he sent money ahead and bought 10 acres of land in advance that he intended to develop as an orange grove. He set sail on the Holland American liner, 
the Edom. It left Rotterdam and was bound for Cuba, where he would then make another 90-mile sea voyage to Key West before traveling another 400 miles north on land. His final destination was Zephyr Hills, Florida, where his sister lived. What a shame. There's a prison there now. (laughs) He's not in it. (laughs) I hope not. He would be super old. Just a little bit. And again, dust. While he never mentioned his wife or daughters, the plan was for him to set up a new life so they could come and join him since there wasn't much of a life for them in what was left of Germany Mm -hmm. at the time. Except for that one machine shop. Well, I mean... According to him, like, he set up, like, financial stuff for them. Like, he, according to him, didn't leave them destitute over That's there. right. But what really happened was he came to Florida and then he sent for them. In his own autobiography, he started talking about his so-called bachelor life as he arrived in Havana, Cuba on February 27th. He arrived during the time of the Carnival and was intoxicated by the spirit of the people. He stayed for four days looking for his lost bride's face among the women. What the fuck, sir? But you're not a bachelor. He's not, but he thinks he is. I guess he figures if I'm out of the zip code, doesn't count? I don't know. Okay. He left on March 1st, taking a ferry to Key West. And again, let's have some fun. (laughs) (laughs) I looked up 1926, Mm -hmm. and it was not a leap year. But according to Carl, February 27th to March 1st is not two days, it's four. He spent four days there. Maybe he was fucking drunk. Maybe. It's his master's degree in math. Once he got to Zephyr Hill, they do say that, like, they don't think he actually had an education. He was just really good with machines. Like, Mm -hmm. we do think he was a mechanic. Really, really bad at math one, apparently. (laughs) So once he got to Zephyr Hills, he did live with his sister while he worked, while he said he worked on the developing property he purchased. And over the course of a year, he fenced in the property with barbed wire, built a road all the way through the 10 acres, and then he started on the construction of the house. He started with a big cement patio surrounded with 36 columns. He was building all this himself. He bought like a cement mixer and... mm -hmm. He likes columns, huh? Apparently. 36. Well, I mean, he wanted a big house. And fucking windows. Next, he was going to build the two-story frame... But then the farmers started coming from all over the area. Hey, what the fuck is this? Making fun of the so-called <laughs> fortress he was building. Exactly. <laughs> this fucker. And then at one point, they started setting, like, fires, fires to the bushes and stuff. Because he's making all this out of, like, cement. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't want, he says he doesn't want his house to burn down. So he's making everything out of cement. Mm-hmm. But then he's like, well, they're setting fire to everything, so it's not safe here. So he had to abandon the project and leave. Oh, no. That's why, you know, this house was never constructed. What a shame. Someone else later says that he told them that he stopped building it because of the economic crash that happened. So he had to move to Key West to get a job. Okay. Okay. I don't believe any of this. What he again doesn't mention at any point is that during this time, his wife and daughters did move to Zephyr Hills. And that when he moved to Key West in search of this job, he left them behind again. (laughs) For the next few years, though, he did keep in touch via mail and he did send them money. And there's there's proof of this, of them communicating. But once he meets Elena in 1930, both the communication and the money back home just stop. It has to. He doesn't even respond when his youngest daughter died of diphtheria in 1934 at the age of 10. It has to. Mm -hmm. It's Elena. Also, it's important to note here that once he moved to the U.S., he started using the name Carl von Kosel. He changed the spelling of his name from Carl with a K, 
which was common in Germany, to Carl with a C to seem more American. And this is when he started telling people that he was a nobleman and that his full title was Count Carl Tonsler von Kosel. And while we don't know what his attitude was like before arriving in the U.S., we know that once he started going by this title, he started acting superior to others. His walk was more of a swagger, and he carried a silver-tipped cane in a theatrical way. Yes, as you're supposed to. You are supposed to. A co-worker once described a pocket watch that Carl would carry. The cover was made of gold, and in the center were four diamonds forming a half moon and a fifth diamond in the center. On the inside of the pocket watch, it was inscribed Count von Kozel from the Tsar of Russia. I mean, can you imagine a name like that and you're wearing like, I don't know, overalls? He dressed well too, apparently. Exactly. Like, yeah. You're supposed to. The theory behind him having this watch is that he probably took it from that castle in Germany after the war. Because, you know, there was that castle and there yes. were the Kozels. So he probably like went in there and grabbed his pocket yep. watch. Um, because... If Carl, it said it was from the Tsar of Russia. Like, if Carl knew the Tsar of Russia, like, we'd have a fucking story about him knowing the Carl. I'm sure there was a story. A story behind that he forgot to tell Mm -hmm. in all of his autobiographies. Right. Unless it happens so often that he just forgot that particular story. Right. Also, the Tsar of Russia was, um, he was murdered during the Russian Revolution of 1917. So if you knew him, like, he's like a kid. Whatever. (laughs) Before arriving in Key West, he stopped in Miami to help a friend and his car, which was full of all of his belongings and his baggage. Well, his car was stolen from outside the hotel. I swear to God, this man gets robbed more. I know. He has such bad luck. (laughs) And this is why, like, everything's missing from his life. That proves everything. (laughs) He's worse than me every time I try to travel. Right. And I get a flat tire. So he was going to call the police and like, you know, because there's no police record or anything of this missing car. He was going to call the police and he was going to look for a stolen car. But bad luck again. Like all of a sudden, all the foreigners in that area are rounded up and taken to Casablanca where they're kept under heavy guard for three months. I mean, I tell you. I mean, why this happened? Who knows? Like nobody knows. But luckily, the German ambassador, you know, Carl's buddy. Yeah. He had him released. Good. As he should. Yeah. So Carl was able to continue to Key West, but now he had nothing when he showed up. Oh, Jesus. I know. It was sad. So once in Carl West, Carl says he was employed with the Marine Hospital right away as a pathologist and an x-ray specialist. That's right. Because he has a degree in in science. Mm -hmm. Medicine. Enter eye roll here. (laughs) (laughs) Key West United States Marine Hospital was a notably well-built three-story facility established in 1846 just one year after Florida joined the American Union. Yay! Yay, Florida. (laughs) It was built to be one of the finest facilities of its type, and for about a century it was. It had the finest state-of-the-art equipment, and it was staffed with very capable doctors and nurses who used advanced procedures. Carl's supervisor was Dr. Marion Lombard, the head of the hospital. Dr. Lombard had served as a surgeon in the U.S. Army Medical Corps in the Philippines and with the Border Patrol north of Mexico prior to World War I. He was known to be a friendly but tough administrator, and he seemed to have taken a liking to the charismatic German and gave him a chance when he hired him. There we go. Carl started out in custodial work, but managed to convince his supervisors that he knew enough about the x-ray machine that he was allowed to operate it as well. 
again mechanic i think he like fixed it Mm -hmm. once and they were like okay you can use it this guy all right a woman who worked with him at the hospital later said that he came in as a destitute man willing to take any job and during his interview he admitted that he was at the time sleeping on the beach and working in the garden of a church in exchange for food so he was given a room on the third floor of the hospital to live in, and the room was described as more of a cell than a bedroom. In addition to this new job that paid him $20 a week, Carl also had a monthly check coming in from Germany. Remember we said that in his own writings that this was from the machine shop that was paying yes. him that monthly allowance? Right. The amount did decrease as the Nazis grew in power, and there's a lot of, of people that saw this check. Like, there's evidence of this check. So it's widely believed that the check was a monthly stipend paid to the German sh- soldiers after World War One. Okay. Um, Dr. Alvin Foraker, who worked with Carl, later said in an interview that Carl told him he was an officer in the German submarine division. Of course. I doubt he was an officer. I doubt he did anything in subs. But, like, there's enough to say that he was he was in the German army, even though he would never admit to it. It's beneath him. He didn't want to be on the losing side of the war, I think. Exactly. Like, I'm not a loser was his whole attitude. Yes, I'm a winner. It seemed as though Carl had plenty of leeway at the hospital. And he was happy because he was in an environment where he could run tests and experiments. And the hospital allowed him to keep his airplane on the property. Yes. This is a true thing. Thank you. Carl claimed to have built the plane from scratch, but everyone who saw it agreed that it was just a broken down old plane that he had towed to the hospital. That's not nice. So he had this old plane secured with hemp ropes, like tied to the base of coconut trees to keep it like upright and looking like a plane or else I guess it would have fallen over. Who knows? The single engine was missing. The propeller was missing. Um, There were no wings. So the article called it airplane without wings. That's not nice. And then he attached... These big-ass wheels, because, okay, so Carl, the engineer, yes. the reason he bought this is he's restoring this plane. Yes. Because remember, he's a pilot, and he builds planes, and, and mm-hmm. you know, he's a genius. So he's trying to repair this plane. So he attaches these big, huge wheels to the sides of this plane. And when people ask him about it, like, okay, they're so big, they're five feet in di- diameter. They're, like, as tall as he is in the pictures. And there are foot and a half thick. Okay. Huge. So when they ask him about it, he says the wheels are pontoon wheels that allow the plane to land on water. Okay. But again, this wouldn't have worked because if he landed on water with just two of the large wheels, Mm -hmm. the tail of the airplane would have sunk, flipping the entire plane over. Mm -hmm. And then if the wheels did actually float, they would have been the only things left out of the water. He is just a man ahead of his time. That's exactly what this is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I love this guy. You can tell. Yes. People loved this guy. I adore him. Oh, my God. So in 1930, Carl von Kozel is a 53-year-old x-ray technician at the Marine Hospital in Key West. He's described as a mildly charismatic, middle-aged German immigrant of average height. The top of his head was bald, but he had hair all around on the sides, Hot. leading down towards his gray Van Dyke beard. He wore, I can't hear so Van he, Dyke without thinking so of Van Dyke. So he looks Amish. He looks, he, he does look German. <laughs> he wore silver round, he wore round silver rimmed glasses over his light blue eyes. On April 22nd, 1930, he was asked to take an x-ray. When he entered the hospital room, everything changed. 
In his words, he recognized Elena as his promised bride and knew that she had been sent to him. And then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. <laughs> In reality, he became obsessed with a 21-year-old woman. Okay, well. Mm-hmm. So let's switch gears now and learn about Elena. You call it obsessed. He calls it love. Where were the two shall meet? Elena Hoyos' full name was Marina Elena Milagro de Hoyos. And she was born on July 31st, 1909. How'd I do with that pronunciation? Pronunciation. Now I can't even say pronunciation, the English word. <laughs> it was good. Thanks. You did good. Her parents were Francisco Hoyos, who friends would call Pancho, and Americans would call Frank. <laughs> <laughs> so disrespectful. And her mother was Aurora Sifontes Malagro Hoyos. Her older sister was Florinda, who everyone called Nana. And her younger sister was Celia. Now, I had a question for you. Her sister was called Nana. It's N-A-N-A. That's mm-hmm. Nana, not Nana. Nana. Okay. Because Americans would say, not Americans, but like. Mm-hmm. The rest of the world. <laughs> People without a Hispanic accent would just say <laughs> Nana. Nana. But it's, I said it right. It's Nana. Nana. Thought so. Yay, me. <laughs> You're getting My so Spanish good. is getting so gooder. <laughs> But oh, your English is getting much worse. So bueno. <laughs> I can't. You love it when I have Spanish stuff in my episode. I do. Originally from Cuba, the family moved to Key West, and her father found work in a cigar factory. Their home was located on Watson Street, where there were a lot of single-story homes built by tobacco barons to house the cigar makers. The Hoyoses had a lot of family in Key West. Now, if you don't know a lot about Cuban families, they're very close. You've got uncles, aunts, and cousins who are always in and out of each other's houses. And of course, this courtesy extends to the boyfriends and girlfriends of all the cousins. So when you go to a home like Elena's, there's always a large gathering of people, loud conversations, music, laughter, etc. And the Cuban community itself is tight. If you're Cuban, you're family. And this area was a large Cuban community. So it's Olive Garden. Everybody loved each other. Everybody Once was family. Your family. Exactly. <laughs> now, singing and dancing were also a very large part of their culture, and Elena and her sisters were said to have done it very well. Elena was described as a very beautiful girl. She had raven black ringlets of silky hair falling around her shoulders. She was said to have been exuberant and full of life, and the most giving of the three sisters. There was a photograph of her that appeared in the newspaper showing her in her middle teens dressed in the popular 20s flapper style accented with a sparkling necklace, gold earrings, and a filmy scarf with a big bow on the side. Oh my god, hot. I have the picture on our website. Elena loved to dance at the local Cuban clubs, and it was said that her lovely singing voice, as well as her good looks, made her a popular performer, where she sang in several special events held at the San Carlos Theater. Another photo of her during this time showed that she was the essence of glamour. She was stunning and confident. She was known to wear a red rose in her hair over her left ear, and in this picture, she also added one to her white fringe dress. On February 18, 1926, Elena married Luis Mesa, becoming Elena Milagro Hoyos Mesa. The couple were soon expecting their first child, but on November 5th, the baby was born prematurely and died. Her health deteriorated, but at first everyone thought it was because she was grieving the loss of her child. But when she developed a cough, it was heartbreaking to the family because they knew what would come next. 
In Key West during the 1920s and 30s, tuberculosis was the number one cause of death. It was especially common among cigar factory workers because of the close confine to their workplace and made it easy for germs to be passed along. The first signs of tuberculosis were weakness, fatigue, loss of appetite, weight loss, chills, and a fever. And again, with Elena, these symptoms were first attributed to her depression. Not that it would have helped if they brought it in early. Like Tuberculosis was a death sentence at this time. And unfortunately, Elena's diagnosis was that she had the worst strain of it. It was referred to as hasty consumption because of how quickly it consumed the people who got it. And at the time, the prognosis was a painful death. But... Carl didn't let that stop him from planning a future with Elena. That's right. He told Elena that he could cure her because he's a genius. This is a man with a vision. In his mind, he would be her savior, and she would be so grateful that she'd agree to be with him forever. I would. He knew that she was married, but that didn't stop him. In fact, after she was officially diagnosed, her husband, Louis, left and moved to Miami. What an asshole. A lot of sources say he left for another woman. But I think these sources all come from Carl originally. Mm-hmm. And Louis Mesa never married again. So I'm not sure if that part's true. But he did He did leave. But here's the thing. And I'm not saying that leaving your wife is good, mm-hmm. especially when she's sick and dying. Like, come on. But at the same time, if you knew somebody with TB, you got TB and died too. Exactly. Like, so I, I think he just got scared and left. But I don't know the guy, so who knows. Anyway, when he left her, Carl figured this was another sign that divine in- intervention meant that they were supposed That's to be right. together. This is a man with a vision. Mm-hmm. So after he told Elena that he could cure her, she and her mother invited him over to dinner that night at their house. And he explained to the whole family that he would cure Elena. In the beginning, she would go into the hospital and Carl would give her radiation therapy through the use of the x-ray machine. Every time he came in, he said that they would sit for hours out in his airplane and talk about their future together. He said that once she was cured, they were going to fly away in his plane to an island he had discovered during one of his fishing expeditions in Australia and that they would spend their honeymoon there. In his memoirs, she was like super excited and all into this. I am. But there was never any proof that Elena encouraged him or had any romantic feelings for him at all. Remember, she had literally just lost a child. Mm-hmm. Her husband just left. And she's told that she's dying. Like, she's not falling in love with Carl. Elena's sister, Florinda, a.k.a. Nana, would later tell the story of how Elena was only nice to Carl because her mother taught her to be nice to others. She saw Carl as an old man and would tell him that she didn't love him every time he proposed to her, which was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) He'd pester her about marrying him so much that the family asked him to stay away. And he did for a while. But then he started coming back with gifts. Because the heart wants what it wants. Mm Mm-hmm. He still talked about marriage and even wrote a letter to Elena's father saying, if a wedding in the family doesn't occur before Christmas, there would be a funeral. Well, there we go. So when he realized that the radiation at the hospital wasn't working, he explains to Elena because it's the hospital is not fully equipped with all the right technology. That's right. And so their x-ray machine is simply not powerful enough for the deep radiation she needs for her lung tuberculosis. So Carl the genius starts building his own machine. I don't like your tone when you called him genius. I apologize not. (laughs) So he starts building his own machines and bringing them directly to their house for treatment. 
Because at this point, she's living with her parents again. I don't know if I said that or not, but mm-hmm. yeah. So one of the first things that he brings over is this electrical device. There's a battery, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, some version of it, like mm-hmm. in a freaking arcade. There's a battery with cords that are attached to these brass handles. Okay. And when you grab the brass handles, you get shocked. Okay. So... As he describes it, her family is very wary of this at first until he shows them that it's not harmful at all. And they're all having fun, taking turns, getting shocked and laughing about how harmless it is and how such a cool device is going to cure Elena. So everybody's happy with Carl. Enter Iroh here. He also brought her love letters and gifts as well as fruit and medicinal wine. The food that he said was perfect for her to eat to help her get well. He claimed that in July, on her 22nd birthday, he was the only person who even remembered her birthday. And so he brought her a huge bouquet of roses, cakes, wine, and an engagement ring. Of course, she accepted, but she could only wear it in private because her family disapproved of her marrying anybody that wasn't Cuban. That's right. Her closest friends would later say that Elena did show them the gifts that Carl bought for her and that there was never an engagement ring of any kind. When Elena's sister Nana married Mario Medina, Carl was invited to the wedding. When he arrived, he got very upset that instead of resting, Elena was not only attending the party, but she was serving drinks, carrying around trays, and playing hostess to a large group of people. Every time Elena's health started to decline, Carl claimed that what he was doing was working and starting to bring her back to health, but then the family would do something to make it worse, like make her work a wedding. Like, you guys aren't helping. Yeah, and they would take her out on car rides. This is exhausting. So he blamed them for making her work hard during the wedding, and he increased his efforts. Every time she got worse, his experiments became more drastic. Am I the only one that loves this woman? He probably said that. (laughs) I know. He referred to the next device he brought over as a high-frequency medical unit. So there's an 8-inch glass tube that he would stick down her throat, and an electrical charge would spark and hit her tonsils in the back of her throat. Jesus criminies. This was supposed to cure the tuberculosis growing in the lungs and the throat. Okay. He had controlled lightning experiments. He exposed her to diathermy. And power fuses would blow out regularly in her parents' house. I don't mean to laugh. No, Elena's father became concerned with the family's ability to pay the high power bills. And Carl's like, Carl's still pretending he's rich and shit this time too. So he's like, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Da-da-da, I'll take care of it. And like, he's like, how can you be concerned about your medical bills? How can you put a price on your daughter? Exactly. I'm assimilating too much with Carl right now. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I believe in love. (laughs) Carl would also create tonics for her to drink. He'd mix various metals into oil-based potions. He said that he dissolved $20 worth of pure gold into one of these solutions and that she wouldn't drink it because of the awful taste. And he told her it was too bad she wouldn't drink it because it was the most potent toxic used to counteract tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. Right, gold. We know now that's the cure. Yes. In an effort to make her more comfortable, and there was proof of this too, this happened and it's creepy he bought her this bed and brought it into her house and like insisted that she sleep in this bed that he bought her so that she'd be more comfortable whatever (laughs) it's creepy and it gets worse like i hate this bed never buy renee a mattress no i hate this bed (laughs) but if you want to buy me like a sort of perfect sleeper i'm down 
Cars are so expensive. I know. That's why I said that. I know, right? (laughs) And then he'd say he'd fill her room with oxygen electrons before he left every night. Okay. So the Masters of Arts in Medicine, Carl, here? Yes. Okay. Oxygen electrons are not a thing. What? Oxygen's an atom that's made up of electrons. What? So somebody with a master's in medicine should know that. Mm. I'm not saying you should know that. So your what's were, were excused. His? No. <laughs> so mad at this guy. <laughs> no. At some point. It's like he, like, does he owe you 20 bucks or what's going on? This guy owes me like <laughs> three weeks worth of your life. <laughs> Actually, that is true. I know. That's why I said it. At some point, Elena's family began to question Carl's methods. Hey, fucker. What are you doing? It said that she like screamed with some of these experiments. Hey, like, fucker. No, not that kind. Like oh. screamed in pain. Ah! Ah, fucker. <laughs> ah, fucker. Like I yelled at the people at Halloween Horror Nights. Motherfucker. Oh, God. <laughs> so when Carl got sick and was in the hospital with Bright's disease for six weeks, the family packed up and moved. <laughs> Now's our chance. That's exactly what it was. (laughs) They wanted nothing to do with him or his experiments anymore. Once he was out of the hospital, Carl returned to the house to find it abandoned. He asked neighbors where they had gone to, but no one would help him. He returned every night, night after night, asking again and again until one of the neighbors finally told him where the family was. (laughs) Look, enough is enough. Yeah. They went to Boca. No, they went to another house in the neighborhood. (laughs) They could have gone a little further. I mean, her father was still working at the cigar still, factory. Come on. When he arrived, he learned that another doctor had been treating Elena in his absence. He got super upset. I would too. I am right now. And he told the other doctor, you're interfering with my treatment. Scram. After all, look how much worse Elena looks after Carl's absence for six exactly. weeks. Exactly. So then he says, he tells this doctor everything that he was doing to cure Elena. And the other doctor says, oh, wow, you're a genius. That's going to work. And the other doctor's like, see, you're right. I got to go. Exactly. Carl continues to talk to Elena. He wants to marry her. Elena, guess who? And he claims that during their many conversations, he discussed her favorite song, which Spoiler later, it's in the newspapers. Like, so I think he figured out later all of this shit and added it to his memoirs. There was about a million songs that just went through my head, but go ahead. You won't know this one. If you know this one, I'll give you a dollar. Like, it's, it's awesome. But, but who knows, too? Like, he spent a lot of time there. If there was a radio on, this was an extremely popular song during you the time. You put your hands so up it, on my hip. When I hit you, did we do? It wasn't that okay. song. So this song was called Loboda Negra. La Boda Negra. La Boda Negra. Have you heard the song? No. It translates to? The Black Wedding. The Black Wedding. (laughs) You know Spanish. (laughs) Yay! My Puerto Rican friend knows Spanish. (laughs) This is not a fake accent. Some people actually believe that this song was written after all of this, saying that the song was written about Carl and Elena. But in fact, it was a very popular song in Cuba during the 20s and 30s, and this was considered to be a highly romantic love song. This song is about a lover who sneaks into a cemetery on a stormy night and steals his sweetheart's body. He carries her to his room, lays her on his bed, covering her with flowers, lays besides her, and ends his own life. You know what this all reminds me of? Hmm. Last Dance with Mary Jane by Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. Now I got that song stuck in my head. That's modern. 
<laughs> that song was also written after this. Well, it came out in 93. Yes. This song was written before this. Sorry. Actually, no, 94. So I looked up the translation to the Spanish. Do you want to hear the song? Yes, please. Okay, I'm not going to sing it because I don't know the tune because I didn't actually listen to it. But here's the English. Listen to the story I once was told by the old gravedigger of the region. It was about a lover who, by ungodly luck, had his sweet beloved taken by death. Every night he went to the cemetery to visit the tomb of his sweet beloved. The townspeople secretly whispered that he was a dead man who escaped the pit. On a horrendous night, he shattered to pieces the abandoned marble tomb. He dug the earth and carried in his arms the rigid skeleton of his beloved. And there in the sad and gloomy room, he mourned under a feeble flame. He sat beside her cold and rigid bones and celebrated his wedding with his dead beloved. He tied her bare bones with ribbons. Her rigid skull he crowned with flowers. He covered her decaying mouth with kisses and proclaimed his love to her with a smile. He took his bride to their soft wedding bed, lying next to her in love, and he remained asleep forever while embracing her rigid skeleton. So, I don't really say this later, but he, remember I said earlier that he later starts to change his story into this great love story? Mm -hmm. At the time, this song was so famous and so popular and everybody thought it was such a great love story that I think that he changes his story later because you'll hear that his story is almost exactly this song except for he didn't die by suicide. Mm -hmm. And that's the story that people believe and later people like write to the newspapers from all over the country in support of this guy. And I think that's why his story went this way. It had to. He needed the sympathy. Yeah. and But it's the story that everybody believes. And I'm like, once you hear the song and you know that this is... Like, you can see mm-hmm. he stole the song and he made it his story. Mm-hmm. It's not what really happened. Anyway, back to the story. <laughs> On Sunday, October 25th, 1931, Elena's brother-in-law, Mario, arrived at the hospital to tell Carl that Elena had passed away. They went to the house and Carl immediately began p- pushing people out of the way to get to her. He hooked her up with electrodes to a machine and tried to revive her. He told Elena's father that if he could continue working on her body, he could restore her life, but her father refused. He blamed the family for not getting him sooner and for putting her in situations that negatively affected her health. Because apparently they had taken on her on a ride in the automobile that day. Yeah. There was like a, a Halloween parade going on or something. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say she died on Halloween, which is, is not true, but I think there was like a Halloween parade. Something happened on the car ride, and and he blamed the parents, basically. He claims that at this point, her father asked him to handle the funeral arrangements since they couldn't afford a decent burial for Elena, and of course he accepted. The funeral was the next evening. Carl claimed to have sensed Elena's spirit floating around the room, and he continued to feel her presence as she was with him everywhere he went. He felt closest to her at the cemetery, where he went every day, rain or shine. Of course, he was worried about her coffin getting soaked by the rain, so he covered the ground with a tarp. Because he was so nervous about the rain ruining both the coffin and Elena's body, he decided to build her a mausoleum. This is where I think he asked the parents, like, for permission to disinter her and everything. And and they said, sure, she can go in a mausoleum. Mm-hmm. Like, nice gesture probably is what they're thinking. So during its three-month construction, Elena's body was disinterred and temporarily stored at a funeral home. The coffin had been damaged at some point, and Carl decided that he should buy her a new coffin. This time, there would be two layers to the coffin for protection. 
For the inside, he chose a lightweight metal container with plain gunmetal finish. It was sealed among the perimeter with 42 screws. These screws would press upon a seal gasket formed by a strip of copper. So it was airtight. Yes. The coffin would be placed inside of a steel vault that he had custom ordered. The vault would be secured by locks that only he had the keys to. Before any of that could happen, he says that Elena's body was checked for damage. Now, some people say Carl wasn't even there and that the undertaker just simply transferred her body from one to the coffin other. to the other. That's the story I believe. Because that's how it goes and that's what makes sense. Like, yes. why the hell would Carl be there? But his account is ridiculous, so let's read what he <laughs> says happens. <laughs> I wish people could see your face. Thank you. Carl claimed that he purchased all the supplies that would be needed, such as new sheets and pillows for the new coffin, sterile cotton, gauze, chemicals, sprays, etc., and then met Reginald Pritchard at the funeral home. When they opened up the coffin, they noticed that the coffin's silk lining had become attached to Elena's face and body. The fabric was badly stained with mud and a lot of green slimy mold. The wooden coffin was rotten and infested with tropical insects, termites, and white maggots. When they tried to peel the silk from her body, they weren't able to do it without removing the skin as well. So Carl sprayed diluted formalin all over her body so that the skin tissues would harden. I read formalin and I'm like, don't they mean formaldehyde? No. (laughs) Nope, it's its own thing. Yes, it is. Formalin is a liquid composed of 37% formaldehyde and 6 to 12% methyl alcohol. And my source didn't say what the other percentages were. I'm going (laughs) to assume water? Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I I looked at a few different sources and I'm like, what are are the other percentages? That doesn't equal 100. And then I got on a tangent and I'm like, I'm never going to finish this episode if I go on every tangent. (laughs) (laughs) They worked for hours spraying her and removing the stuck material, staying all night until it was finally done. Then, Carl bathed her body before they covered her in clean cotton and sprayed her with perfume. Then they placed her in the new airtight metal coffin. Carl made a big deal about how the original mortician didn't embalm the first coffin. And that's why all this happened. Okay. Okay. Coffin embalming is not Not a thing. thing. Nope. But he made a big deal out of telling everybody that that step was missed. Also, originally, the first time she was buried, he requested that she not be embalmed. So she wasn't. Oh, okay. So I believe he was planning on taking her all along. Yes. Mm-hmm. At this point, seeing the condition of her body, he said he saw enough life left in her that he knew he could resurrect her still. So he says, again, I don't think he's seen her body at this point. He says he built a custom incubator tank, and a few nights later, he went back into the funeral home alone, nobody knew this, and removed her from her coffin, placed his own incubator tank inside, placed her in the incubator tank, filled it with a solution of antiseptics and liquids that would nourish her cells, and then put Elena back in the incubator tank and sealed everything back up to the way it was when he found it. Okay. And of course, nobody's going to notice that this coffin weighs a lot more now. Absolutely not. This bitch is heavy. I know. I don't believe any of this. The mausoleum was complete in 1932. The building was five feet high and eight feet wide with a rounded concrete roof. The only entrance was a door centered in the front that had small windows covered by blue curtains. There was a marble plaque beside the door that read, 
Eleno Milagro Hoyos, born July 31st, 1909, died October 25th, 1931, R.I.P. C.T.D. Kosel, which most likely stood for Countess Damsel Kosel. Inside, two steps led down to the two sepulchers. So, you know those above-ground cement rectangular Mm -hmm. containers with the heavy cement slabs on top? Yes. That's a sepulcher. Well, there's two in here. One for Elena, one for Carl. One for Nana. (laughs) No, one for Carl. (laughs) And it said that he decorated the inside of this crypt elaborately, and he even installed a telephone so that he could call her when the weather was too bad for him to visit her. Because he would visit every day. Okay. And of course, he was the only person with the keys to the three padlocks on the door. Could you imagine her family at this point seeing this mausoleum? Just a little bit. Because at this point, like, there's this guy that kind of tried to save their daughter, even though they thought he was quack, and he asked them for Mm -hmm. her hand too many times, like... At one point, they moved away from him. Yeah, but they also granted him the permission to disinter her body, Mm -hmm. build the mausoleum, move her in, thinking this must just be a nice gesture or whatever. So then they go and they see the mausoleum. Number one... Her full name isn't even on this plaque. This is not important. He dropped her married last name. That's not the, what marriage. Okay. So that's number one insult. Number two insult is that he writes Countess Kozel on the bottom of her friggin' name. Okay. You'd be like, seriously, <laughs> picture this family. It feels so horrible at this point that they're walking up Absolutely. and seeing this. Okay. And then number three, you walk into it and there's a spot for her and a spot for him mm-hmm. well i mean he paid for it i don't know how at at this point her family is not like vomiting all over the place like it, it's just disgusting it is but at the same time you know I, we never blame the victims of the victims families but I mean, i'm not blaming the victim no, family absolutely I'm no. i feel really really no, bad but what for I'm them gonna, at this point but what i'm gonna say I think her is, mother's sick at this point like there's some but what i'm gonna say going is on. you know you did the right thing when you moved away while he was sick himself, why did you reopen? Why did you let him back in and reopen old wounds? I don't know if it was that. Like they moved away, and then he found out. Like he kept, and he's like, "I can save your daughter. I can save your daughter." Like if somebody's at your doorstep and your daughter's dying, are you not going to allow people to try crazy shit? Not after, crazy not after person? you've been trying for. You know what I'm saying? I know. I'm. I'm just, I feel really especially, bad for them. I don't blame them at all for letting him back into their if, lives. you know, you're looking at her and it's like, okay, because I, I think about my own mortality and granted, I want to be around for as long as I can for my grandkids, mm-hmm. but sometimes, you know, like chemo does more harm than good sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just, you know, if the father would have looked at her and just been like, you know what? You've tried your best. Thank you so much. But if these are her last days, I don't want her to spend them like this. You know what I'm saying? I, it's, I don't know. I don't know because you know that with tuberculosis, it's a painful death. And you got somebody showing up on your door saying, I can cure her. But in not making it any better. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't blame them at all. They're, I'm they're not blaming them at all. I'm just saying. Them gifts. I'm, I'm, and, not, I'm not blaming them either. I'm just saying, you know, me, myself, as mm-hmm. a mom, you know, I would be like, you know what? I, I can't anymore. But at this point, too, so we've also, I haven't discussed yet because it's at the bottom. I should have put it up here. 
it's at the bottom. Like, the rest of the family is getting sick at this point, too. And they're struggling financially. So he's offering to help with stuff. So what I haven't mentioned yet is he worked out a deal with them where at this point, he's, after she died, Mm -hmm. he offers to pay them $5 a month in rent to live in Elena's bedroom. And because they're having financial issues, they are very destitute at this point. Mm -hmm. So they accept. So now he's sleeping in her bed after her death. And he says he feels very close to her. He loves being able to smell her, like all this shit. Her sister. <laughs> I like that, all this shit. I, it's so creepy. And he's taking advantage of this family. Very much so. And his, okay, his, her sister would later say that they had to provide him. He insisted that they provide him with toast, tea, scrambled eggs in the morning, fish at night. And he never really paid them on time. What is this, the fucking Hilton? Well, here's the thing, too. Remember, he's pretending to have money. He's pretending to be this generous benefactor. So like, they don't know that he mm-hmm. is also financially unstable. Like, he has got this persona that everybody in this community believes. Yep. Because he's very charismatic. And, and he anybody carries, that and he knows carries himself him, well. Yeah. Yep. Like, later on, like, he has friends that go to bat for him. He carries himself as somebody who is something. And they believe it. So he'd still visit the mausoleum every single evening, bringing her gifts. His visits started drawing attention. So he started going later and later at night, and he'd lock himself in the mausoleum, which he called her tomb. And he said he locked himself in there to avoid the harassment of the other people that noticed him going in and out. I don't buy it. I don't buy that that's why he locked himself in. I know he locked himself in. So he claimed that he was able to communicate with her. Sometimes he would feel her hands on him. Other times he would see her figure waiting for him at the entrance to the tomb when he was running late. She'd be waiting. She'd often sing her favorite song, La Boda Negra, and he'd hear her voice coming out of the coffin. And she spoke to him. She begged for him to take her to the tomb so that they could be together. And it was her who came up with the plan for him to get the coffin out of the cemetery late one night. All we know of how this happened is from Carl's own accounts. I doubt this is how he... (laughs) I I think some of this must be true, because how is one man going to get a coffin out of a cemetery? Mm -hmm. Right? So some of this must be true, but let's read Carl's story. Okay. (laughs) He said that he tied the casket to a toy wagon he had purchased. And when he struggled pulling the wagon, the cemetery came alive with spirits who guided his cart with their friendly hands. Not for nothing, but I don't think that coffin would would bode well on top of Red red Flyer. I don't know how else he would have done it. That part, I believe. Not a wagon. A a toy Red Flyer wagon. toy Red... Yeah, okay. Okay, let me also... Okay, soapbox. Things used to be built to last. (laughs) Not an entire coffin. I don't know. How else did he get the coffin out of What if somebody helped him? Some people believe somebody did. Okay. He said that he tied the casket to a toy wagon he had purchased. When he struggled pulling in areas, the cemetery cave alive with spirits who guarded his, guided his cart with their friendly hands. He, he had said that her spirit made friends with the other spirits in the cemetery. They were all in on it together. They were all on Facebook together. <laughs> they were in cemetery book together. Mm-hmm. He'd chosen to bring the coffin to an abandoned house next to the cemetery for the first night. He struggled lifting the coffin into the window of the house. I would think so. And he slipped and fell. 
and the entire thing came crashing down on him, pinning him down. But all of a sudden, a supernatural strength flowed through him, and he was able to get the coffin back up and through the window. He knew at that point that he was saturated with sweat from the excursion and blood from that accident. But then he realized that wasn't the only reason he was wet. During the crash, the bottom valve of that incubator had fallen out and the liquids had dripped all over him. Fuck. He I could have done without that shit. Oh, this story gets worse. He quickly went inside the house, plugged the hole up with cotton and tilted the coffin at an angle so that no more of his precious life-giving solution would come out. He went home that night, but he wasn't in the clear yet. He smelled so bad from the liquid that it soaked him that the dogs in the neighborhoods would bark when he went past. Eventually, I would have fucking barked and I'm fully human. Eventually, he made it back to the hospital where he still had his room and he had to take multiple showers to clean the smell off of himself. Yes, please. As for what really happened, who knows? It was highly doubtful that he'd even place the incubator in there like he claimed. Like, there's no way he's got this incubator full of liquids in there. So, On the wagon. Him adding this parts about him getting soaked by this smelly fluid is like, why is he even telling this part of the tale? Like, he is getting some sick, morbid joy out of people uh -huh. reading this. Also, at this point, she's an airtight metal fucking casket. How is this liquid coming out of this casket? It It's, this isn't, it's... He's got this morbid sense yep. of wanting people to read this shit. Yep. He later told police a different story because when he was first caught, remember, it was a different story. And then he started going with, oh, it's, it's going to be a love story. Mm -hmm. So when he was first caught, he told police that one night while he was in the mausoleum, he noticed that her body was decomposing, her which means was, he's in there yeah. like opening this up yep. and looking at her. And, and she's leaking. No, like he, when he would lock, like, the leaking was part of his lie, but when he would lock himself in the mausoleum, one night he decided to open it all up and he realized that her body was decomposing and he wanted to preserve her so she'd be immortal. And his quote was, I did not want one so beautiful to go to dust. Ugh. So on the night of a full moon, almost two years after her death, he did steal her coffin and he said at first he brought it to the hospital. For a week, he hid her in the hospital while he worked on her body. In one source, right after his arrest, he said he treated her bodies with chemicals to remove the decaying flesh. So he's just like wanting the body. But in another source, later on, he starts saying that he was using chemicals at the hospital to restore decomposed portions of her body. And now he tried to use x-ray treatments to reactivate the inner cells of her body. At one point, he said, at this point, when he realized that he failed to bring her back, he wanted her to remain as he always remembered her and started thinking about preservation. He'll change that story again. But back to the time period. After he had put her body through whatever it was he did at the hospital, he moved her body out to his airplane, which he had now painted CTS, Countess, but he wrote CTS Elaine Von Kozel painted on the side. And now here's the thing too, like she's Elena, E-L-E-N-A. But what he painted on the side was Elaine, E-L-A-I-N-E. So I don't know if he's trying to Americanize her name like Maybe. he did his own. But for whatever purpose, he painted her name on the side of his plane. There's pictures of this. This is when Carl explained that he really got to work. As he cleaned her body and removed mud, mold, and maggots while soaking the fabric off her, he would stop each time his bucket of waste filled up to go out and pour it into the nearby harbor. As he worked, the metal coffin filled up with the liquids he was using to soak her body. This is where he most likely got the idea of the incubation tank. And he simply used the metal coffin as a tank at this point. 
He filled it up with disinfectants to kill all the maggots that were on her body and counteract the odor. In this pool that he created, it's now easier for him to turn her body as he's cleaning her. Mm -hmm. When he was done, he dried the coffin out and sprayed her body with a cologne and dressed her. It's this lavender cologne, and you know it's like my favorite scent and color, so this whole episode is making me feel a certain way about my favorite stuff. Okay. He had bought her a wedding gown and added her own jewelry along with a gold-colored tiara and his wedding ring to her body. Now we have to talk about her hair for a second. Later on, one source says that it's artificial hair on her head. But there's a lot of talk about her real hair and how he had a bag of her hair, and how he got it was up for debate. Who knows if he even had the hair and it was artificial. Mm-hmm. So at one point he said that he won- that he had explained all of how he was going to care for her body to her parents. And her mother said, great idea, here's some of her hair. Bullshit. Another story is that when he was reburying Elena, like in the mausoleum, her mother came to him and said, oh, well, I want Elena to be whole at last in the new coffin. So here's some hair of hers I kept and gave it to him. I think that's also BS. He lived in their house. Maybe he found some and stole it. Maybe it was artificial. Who knows? But let's just say like her hair, there was like a a big to do over it. So I wanted to mention it. Either way, at this point in time, he dressed her, he put her in the coffin, and he simply laid the hair out around her head, giving her the appearance of longer hair. He then, as he often did, breathed air into her lungs. This occasional not-quite CPR was his attempt to breathing life into her. And of course, this always led him to kiss her. And then he lied with her in the coffin celebrating their wedding together. Okay. I'll leave it to you to figure out what that means. I know exactly what that means. So Carl had written about how he believed in Brahman wisdom, which said that if you die of a disease and are buried for a year, you'd be cured of the disease. And sure enough, when he ran tests on Elena's body, all traces of tuberculosis were gone. By the time he stole her body, she had been dead for two years. So the TB was gone after two years of death. Mm -hmm. He also said that he believed in resurrection because of his own experience. He claimed that once he had awoken in a morgue in India, knowing that he had been saved. As he continued to, as he put it, take care of Elena, he would diagnose and treat her. Her lips were slightly parted and desiccated, so he diagnosed that as dehydration and started hydrating her by giving her liquids and hydration baths. And yes, he fed her. Pouring the liquid directly into her mouth would make a mess, and he was really worried about ruining her bridal gown and eventual other outfits. When they found all this, like he had a whole closet full of outfits he would play dress up with her with. Of course he did. So what he started doing was he started using his own mouth to feed her, like a mother bird feeding the baby birds. Okay. So he mentioned also that when he gave her too much of one kind of food, that her body would expel it. So he had to switch the types of food he gave her daily for her body to absorb all the nutrients. Her body couldn't handle like all of one type of nutrient. It had to be like a real Mm -hmm. live living person and be the variety. And he said that he knew her body was digesting it because every time he opened her coffin, which he now referred to as the incubation tank, there was a new surprise waiting for him in the form of waste. Okay. He claimed that parts of her skin were gaining life and that her pupils were forming again as she looked at him. But her eyes were gone, having decomposed long ago. He purchased special glass eyes that he placed in her eye sockets. 
He'd bathe her to keep her from smelling. He'd use soap and water, then rinse her in wine as antiseptic, then apply a lot of perfume. To prevent further decay, he placed her organs, such as her small intestine, pancreas, spleen, kidneys, bladder, liver, and lungs into terracotta pots for preservation. He'd fill her body with sterile cotton and linen packets containing sea salt, baking soda, and aromatics. He'd bandage up areas of decay in her fingers, feet, and toes, and then moisten the bandages with formalin to harden the skin against further decay. He'd use wire in places like her jaw to keep its shape. He specifically said that temporary splint and bandages were used until parts of her body could heal, and he mentioned how well her nose had healed back to its original shape. He'd use powders of calcium and sodium on her body to supplement the loss of elements in her body. At some point, he reattached the additional hair to her head, and he said she began looking more like herself. She gained 20 pounds, her tissues had begun to heal, and her hair was regaining vitality. He noticed that the expression on her face was changing to one of happiness. All this led to him taking more and more time away from his job at the hospital, and eventually he was fired. He was asked to remove his plane from the property. Carl spoke to Officer Bienvenido Perez, who told him there was a place on Rest Beach where he could keep the plane because the spot belonged to the city. There were old building ruins that would make a perfect spot for him there. So the story goes that the police officer, Bienvenido Perez, thought it would be fun to make a parade out of moving an airplane from one place to another. Mm Mm-hmm. So Carl asks Elena's brother-in-law, Mario, to tow the plane using Elena's father's car. Officer Perez drives in the front on his motorcycle, stopping periodically to direct traffic and encouraging onlookers to jump in their own vehicles and follow along on this parade. Big old procession, huh? Everyone's waving at the plane, driving by and having fun. Carl, at one point, asked Elena's father when they drove past his house to come and ride in the truck that's pulling the plane. Mm -hmm. And Carl gets an especial thrill out of driving past Elena's house and having her father drive the car because they don't know their own daughter's body is inside. Yep. So they finally make it to the beach. At the beach, there were ruins of an old slaughterhouse. The slaughterhouse was close to the ocean because as pigs and cows were slaughtered in this building, the blood could just be, like, washed down into the ocean. Awesome. One side of this old building was still standing, so the spot was perfect for Carl's needs. He parked the plane right next to the wall, and along with the help of Mario and another friend of his, Frank, they built a building around the plane. He called the site of his new home the Butcher Pen. Uh, Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about this friend Frank for a second. Like, some papers will later say, like, they think Frank might have helped Carl move the coffin out of the cemetery. Mm -hmm. Carl says, like, he helped drive the car or something, but didn't know the, like, I don't know. At one point, they tried to go after Frank, but there was no proof of anything. But from this side of the story on, like, Frank is usually around. So the building he builds is divided into two sections. One side of this building is a plane hangar and a workshop, and the other half is his bedroom. In the bedroom, he built a makeshift laboratory with an examining bench for Elena. Shelves were loaded with books, bottles, chemicals, and other miscellaneous supplies. And in the hangar was a small gas fire generator that provided electricity. He got Elena's bed from her parents' house and moved his precious organ in here as well. You know, the one that I don't think exists? Yes. During the construction of his new home, Elena's body had to be mostly unattended to for six weeks as he wasn't able to attend to her with others around. 
When he was finally able to take her out again, he bathed her, perfumed her, and doubled his efforts to rehydrate her body when he realized that she had lost weight again. He filled her casket up with his plasma solution. He'd check on her every six hours, and every three days he'd take her out, give her high-voltage radiation treatments, and let her body rest for an hour. He was thrilled to live so close to the ocean because he was able to rig hoses to drain into the water when he was changing his trial and error plasma in the tank. The mixture that he used was mostly made up of sugar, salt, and whatever else he had handy. Oh, very resourceful. I mean, he's, he's a known doctor. Like, the shit works. <laughs> and he claimed that she absorbed enough of these nutrients in her baths to double her weight again. He said that her form was filling out and developing. Her beauty and happiness was starting to shine through again. Her weight went from 30 pounds to 90 pounds. And he claimed that he was waiting until she was 100 pounds to fully revive her. He had to be careful not to wake her too soon because after all, you only get to come back from the dead once and he had to make sure her body was ready for it. YOLO. Yo do. <laughs> Yo dot. You only die twice. Yo dot. <laughs> He wanted to make a cast of her face and her body out of plaster of Paris. He placed silk over her and applied the plaster, but he quickly realized that the plaster combined with the silk would stick to her. So he made a solution of beeswax and balsam and covered her body with it. He was successfully able to take molds of her after that. He also realized then that the wax would protect her from insects, so he added more wax to cover her skin. He wants her to look like Madame Tussauds Wax Museum, or what are we going for here? It's it. That's actually what he did. Oh shit! Um, Sorry, I said that. No, it's it's no, going in it's, that direction. Exactly. The fact that I thought about it already is pretty sick of me. Then, when that proved to cover up her facial features too much, he fixed her face with cosmetic pencils, eyeshadow, rouge powder, lipstick, and perfume. Fix your face. Now, this is his story. He's like, oh, I was just taking molds and some plaster got on her. What he was actually doing was he was building plaster of Paris around her to build the frame because at this point she's probably just bones mm -hmm. and adding wax. And so, yeah, in the end, she looked like a wax figure. Mm -hmm. He's building soft tissue. Yeah, that's exactly what he was doing. The home on the beach wasn't without its problems. There was a local group of men who Carl claimed started to harass him. He gets all harassed a lot for somebody who's so charismatic. Don't forget, he had a lot of burglaries, too. True. Frank decides there's safety in numbers, so he built himself a home right up next to Carl's, a small, like, shack, shed. Mm -hmm. They called it a lean-to. Then, those two decided they'd get a bunch of dogs to help protect their homes further. So Frank's basically living there now, too. So the fact that Frank says he knows none of this is going right. on, like... Nothing about Frank is ever said again after the article that says his friend may have helped. Like, nothing again ever about Frank. <laughs> Frank disappears after this. So... Wouldn't you? I, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> Carl felt safe in his new home, and Elena didn't have to stay hidden away anymore. So she slept in that double bed with him every night, surrounded most of the time by flowers. Remember in our song, she was surrounded by flowers? He set up an air filter and attached it under her nose, and she'd sing to him and talk to him. 
Just because she was unconscious doesn't mean that she wasn't communicating with yeah, him. Yeah, Renee. God. But, you know, because she was unconscious, she had to speak to him in his mind. That's right. But she always let him know that she loved him and she was grateful of his care. Yes. There was a hurricane during this time. But it's it, Florida. it didn't hit as bad as everybody thought it would be. So they were able to successfully survive the hurricane living on the beach. But then the WPA starts construction. So do you remember President Roosevelt's New Deal from history in American history class? Yeah. And he created the Work Progress Administration. <laughs> and Son of a bitch! Oh, I loved it. My So my college history professor was the biggest Roosevelt fan ever. <laughs> so when I got the education on what the New Deal like really truly was, mm-hmm. I got it from a woman who was literally writing a book on Roosevelt. Nice. I think she was going to title it something like The Last Real President. Or like she was a big fan. And this was, you know, me in college was 20 years ago. So my view of the New Deal was, you know, it was the person that taught it to me. He was a huge fan. So... You know, his deal was to employ people across the nation to build public works such as parks and schools and roads. And I have no problem with President Roosevelt's New Deal because it created jobs for a lot of people and it created a lot of like infrastructure. Exactly. So I'm a fan. Now, would vote for him again. (laughs) I didn't the first time. (laughs) I know we don't go political on this podcast, but if Roosevelt were to like come back from the dead, I might vote for a zombie president. I, I more reason say, than one. As long as his eyeball didn't fall out of his skull, I guess I'm okay. I might still vote for him. Jesus. He doesn't need an eyeball to create work. Is he go rock an eye patch? <laughs> president Pirate Roosevelt. <laughs> president Gaspar. Hell yeah. <laughs> So this construction, he says, involves explosions that started causing rocks to fly at his home. There's a lot of rocks. Son of a bitch. Like, I don't, this guy's stories. (laughs) So he decides for the safety of, you know, himself, he needs to move again. And her. And Frank. Sorry, they need, Frank doesn't move with him this time. Oh, no. We don't hear from Frank again. He brings the dogs with him. Okay. So. They need to move. Right. Carlin and Elena, the yes. newlyweds, they need to move. They're not newlyweds at this point. This no, they're point, not. I think it's like four or five years in. I don't I don't know. Now it's just getting old, literally. <laughs> <laughs> so somewhere on the island he finds this large shed and he just moves into it. Okay. Because you don't need permission to do that. In somebody's backyard. I, well, this is about two miles from the settled part of Key West. So That's even worse. Yeah, it's like in the middle of nowhere. He parks his wingless airplane by the shed, and inside he had a lot of things that would later be referred to as junk. And he also claims, you know, he brings his precious organ along that he brings everywhere, which I just, I think it's so funny because eventually people are like, uh, none of the organs worked. None of them seemed to be like anything that could have been built by hand on a beach in a concentration camp. And also, a lot of his memoirs are constantly about how Elena's always asking him to play the organ and play all this music for her. Like, the organ was a big part of their romance. And He's a visionary. But it didn't even work. <laughs> the sign outside of his building, he, he puts a sign outside of his new shed called The Laboratory. And he also moved his aggressive pack of dogs to this new location. The leader of the pack, Granny, was especially aggressive. 
Great name, I guess. So I never write about the dogs again, but it's funny because one of the stories when he's in prison later is like some group of fucking harassing people come by and poison the dogs and kill the dogs. And his beloved granny dies and Frank has to come to the jail to tell him this news. But then the newspaper reports later, like he goes up to his house and his dogs are so excited to see him finally home that they're all jumping on him. And I'm like, okay. So there's zombies dogs too in the story? I mean, it's just like he's he's got to tell like the most outrageous stories that like most of them are provable. So it's stupid. Okay. <laughs> Back to Elena. Okay. He never stops working on trying to heal her. Whenever he'd find a leakage, he'd seal it up with silk Blah. and wax. There's no leakages. Come I know, on. but you could have used any other word. I'm using his word because I don't care. it's him. <laughs> When any part of her shrunk in by the loss of fluids, he'd fill it up with sterile cotton packing and apply more silk and wax to seal it. Wax on. You see here what he's doing? He's making an excuse to why there was so much wax on her body. On July 29th, 1936, Carl knew he was on the right track when Elena had a last reawaken to life. She woke up, Suheili. She wakes. (laughs) 1936. I wish you could see your face. (laughs) <laughs> Ta-da! Ta-da! <laughs> the fingers on her hand moved and she lifted her hand to his lips it was the first thing she did upon awakening was lift her hand to his lips for a kiss and then she attempts to get up but he kisses her and he tells her relax darling let me get you some tea and yeah because your he, breath stink and while he's preparing her tea she again slips into unconsciousness but he can tell now that she's continuing to watch him we could do this on March 2nd, 1940, she saves his life. Or she did. She does. So he's working out on his boat, because now all of a sudden he's got a boat in this shed in the middle of the woods. Wouldn't you? I mean, I, I don't know how things happen with this guy anymore. <laughs> Are you giving up? I'm giving up on thinking there's even a boat there. Okay. But he's working on his boat, and he happens to slip and fall between some of the floor beams. He breaks his ribs on the left side, right near his heart, and the pain paralyzes him so that he's unable to move, and he knows that he's just going to be stuck there and die. But her voice comes to him, and she instructs him, if you take a deep breath in, you expand your chest, which will loosen you, and you will be free. And so he listens to her, Mm -hmm. and he's able to get loose and get back home to his Elena. And here's the thing. When he gets home and he slides into bed next to her, he realizes that the contact next to her is the only thing that keeps the pain away from this broken rib. So he simply lays next to her and lets like the power of their connection heal him until his rib is now no longer broken. Because that's how it works. It's a beautiful love story. It so is. Haley. It is. I wish you'd stop poo-pooing love. On Sunday, September 29th, 1940, there's a reported break-in at the mausoleum. You mean yesterday, September 29th? Yes, it's the anniversary. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but this episode won't come out till the last weekend of October. So. It doesn't matter. Okay. It's just creepy. It's, it's just creepy right now. What's funny is, like, he gets arrested in October. She died in October. This episode's coming out in October. I didn't plan any of that. Oh, imagine if you did. That would have been lame. <laughs> <laughs> And we're anything but, duh. No, I just, I find it a funny coincidence. So anyway, there's a reported break-in at the mausoleum. Someone had broken into the glass window on the door and was able to get inside. The heavy lid to the sepulcher was on the floor, but the vault within was still locked since only Carl had the keys. 
Elena's sister, Nana, Pritchard the Undertaker, Carl, and a few others met at the cemetery after they heard of this break-in. Nana asked Carl to unlock the vault, but he refused, saying the only time Elena would ever be disturbed again would be when he himself died and was laid to rest next to her. I said what I said. So now I don't even get to the point of the two sepulchers, because apparently he's planning on being buried in her coffin. That's right. Like, could you imagine being the sister and him being like, no... We are not proving your sister's body is still in here until I die and I'm late That's next right. to her. Like, you're the doctor that was crazy. <laughs> like, this poor woman, seriously. Two nights later, on Tuesday, October 1st, 1940, nine years after Elena's death, her sister Nana Medina, as well as a friend, met with the custodian of the graveyard, while Nana's husband Mario was sent to get Carl. When Carl arrived, Nana once again asked him to open the vault, and again, he refused. She said that she had heard some awful rumors, and they needed to make sure that Elena was, in fact, resting in peace. And then Carl accused her of being the one to break into the mausoleum in the first place. Which, by the way, is probably true. Like, yeah. she'd heard some rumors she couldn't get in. Mm -hmm. She wanted to see if her sister was in there. Mm -hmm. Like, I fully believe that she broke into the mausoleum, and I don't doubt her. But we have no proof of that. I just, you know... Nana's my Speculated hero in this wildly. story, so I'm going with it. <laughs> so the two of them get into a big argument. This is Carl's version. And she's threatening to call the police, saying that the police will break it open. And he's like, you know what? Just come to my home. I have something to show you. No. He explains when they get to his house that he's helping to cure Elena. She's in the plane. He shows them the body. And at first, the sister's like, that's not her, because it doesn't really look like her anymore. She's like, that's a doll. And then when she, like, gets a closer look, she realizes it, it has to be her sister. So she calls the police. The police do end up getting the, the coffin and the crypt open, the vault, and no body. No body, no crime. No body, no crime. But they go get the body, so now there's a crime. Ah, oh, shit. On Sunday, October 5th, 1940, the sheriff presented a warrant charging Carl with the possession of a dead body. They arrest What's a dead body? <laughs> Nobody, no crime. It's, it's a wax figure. Exactly. Possession of a wax Like, this is so gross. They arrested him and moved Elena's body to a funeral home. Deputy Sheriff Bernard Way and Ray Elwood went to the home and found Elena's body. She was wearing a blue silk robe, white hosiery, and black shoes. Near the bed on which they slept were three plaster of Paris death masks of her face. Benches nearby were cluttered with tools, parts of electrical machinery, and bottles filled with chemicals. Now, a lot of sources will say it's two twin beds in the room that were pushed up next to each other or yeah. whatever, that they slept in separate beds. What it was was it was this double bed that he had bought for her, but he, like, her side was, like, made differently because all the wax and stuff like she had more sheets like other yeah. stuff and his side was like more simple like so it looked like two separate beds it looked like there was literally a divider down the middle of the bed but they were sharing a bed and he constantly talks in his memoirs about how they were married and you know in the eyes of the lord like i i didn't talk about it much in here but he was in we think that he was in that catholic dormitory for boys we think that he was very religious so when he dresses her in the bridal gown and talks about how they were married I think it was his way of getting over the fact of what he was doing because since they were married, he was making it okay in the eyes of like the God that he believed in and getting around the rules that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I'm sure that's not how that works. 
So as I said before, a medical examiner said that at least part of a human body did remain in the now largely wax effigy. Since Elena's body wasn't embalmed and had been buried for six months before even being transferred to the mausoleum, little but the skeleton could have even remained when Carl took her body. Carl Tonsler appeared surprised when they arrested him. He told the police that he promised Elena that he would take care of her and that her father gave him permission to do so. He explained to them that he wanted to preserve her beauty while he tried experiments to see if life could be restored to her body. The preliminary hearing began on October 8th. Nana was the chief witness and told the court about how Carl was the only person who had a key to the mausoleum and would refuse to let anyone in to visit Elena. Carl claimed that he frequently unlocked the tomb for them, but they never went in. The judge asked Carl how much he spent on restoring her, and he said it was close to $3,000, which would be about $65,000 today. Okay. The judge commented to Carl that Elena looked the same as any wax figure at any store. By the way, remember I said, like, he had gotten fired at one point? Yeah, because he stopped going to work to take care of her. He's still getting, like, those checks from the, the German government for a while, but eventually that stopped. Him spending all this money on her, he put everything he ever had into this at this point. He is, again, living destitute. The pictures of him, like, at this point, he looks destitute. It's a completely different Carl at this point after living with a dead body for seven years than the one he was preventing. Yeah, yeah. Took his toll on him, too. Yeah. Elena's body was laid out on public display at the Dean Lopez funeral home, dressed in the sill blue robe with a rose in her hair, and she was covered by a gauze veil. Her body became the biggest sightseeing attraction that Key West had ever known. Over 10,000 people eventually came to see her body. An order was granted that Elena's sister would be able to bury her sister again in an unmarked grave. Carl was absolutely livid and said that the police promised him he would be able to get Elena's body back. He claimed that his life would be over without her. And they did. They secretly buried her body one night at like 3 a.m. There's no one left alive that knows where her body is. Oh, my God. On October 10th, Carl was brought to the courthouse again and was examined by three doctors who found him to be mentally competent to stand trial on the charge of wantonly and maliciously destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization. Justice of the Peace, Enrique Esquinaldo, ordered that Carl be held on $1,000 bail. A few hours after Carl was declared declared sane, a letter showed up from his estranged wife saying she was ready to tell what she knew about his sanity. Her letter said, quote, I note in the papers that Carl Tonsler is in custody. He is my husband and we've been separated 11 years. His mind is troubled on account of many things. It was impossible for us to live together. He has had many adverse setbacks. If my testimony as to his sanity is desirable, I will gladly tell him what I know. Confronted with the letter, Carl said, sure, we separated. She was jealous. She pulled a gun on me. In the scuffle, a shot was fired. I decided then that I would leave her. He insisted that he separated from her in Dresden, Germany, 16 years ago and hadn't heard from her in 12 years. He was telling newspapers all of this information. And then he goes, his sister, who resides in Zephyr Hills, had written to him that his wife was with her. He had received no word from his sister since January. And once he mentioned his sister, police starts asking, like, oh, who's your sister? What is name? And he snaps on them. Like, he's being cordial. He's interviewing. He's telling his story. And as soon as they ask for the name of his sister, he snaps. 
leave her out of this. I don't want her name to be brought into this. She's very old and sickly, which she wasn't. Please get me some paper and an envelope. I want to write my wife to keep out of this. I thought she had a divorce. So his demeanor like switches because now here's the people that know him. Mm-hmm. Here's the people that could give the real story. Yep. And honestly, I think the newspapers, like they had his wife's name. They had the location Zephyr Hills. I think the newspapers like really missed big in not traveling up there and getting the story from his sister and his wife. Could you imagine what they would have said about him? Yeah. And the wife and the letter that she writes about like his mental stability and stuff. I want that story. Yeah. Like I'm really a little bit mad at the newspaper reporters from almost 100 years ago. But you should write a letter. (laughs) Write a letter to go back in time? Yes. Okay. But I just, I, I want that story. I want the story from, because we always look at like, where did people come from? What made them yeah. do the things they do? Like what's the psychology behind what makes people do the things mm-hmm. they do is part of what really, really fascinates me about true crime. And I don't have that here. I have his accounts. I don't know anything about yeah. his early life because it's all BS. But anyway, the case brought a ton of media attention across the nation. And it created this huge sensation almost overnight. Letters from all over the country start pouring in, declaring their support of Carl because they believed him as this eccentric romantic. And they're begging the judge. They're writing letters to the judge saying, you've got to let this guy keep her body. They all believe in love. They all say the body belongs to him. He put, you know, seven years into preserving this body. How can it not be his? It's his by right. Like all this stuff. And her sister is like... What the, the fuck? No, but like she's like at this point being portrayed as the bad, bad guy and yeah, everything. The villain. She, she's trying to keep the lovers apart. It's disgusting. I think there was one or two newspaper articles that didn't go at it from that angle. And actually some of the stuff I got was because they interviewed her and they're like, this is disgusting. Listen to her side of the story. She's the family. She's, you know, now the victim. So on October 12th, Carl was released on bail After several people, like all these people, some of these people that don't even know him are going to the sheriff's office and putting up their properties for the bond of this bail because they so much believe on him. So two people ended up going officially being on the the bail and one of them he knew. One was a friend, not Frank, another friend. And the other one was a complete stranger who just... No, the one was somebody that had known him for, I think, six months because he had been doing, like, a pottery sculpture for the person. Mm Because I guess at this point he's making money doing pottery. Who knows? (laughs) And the other person was a complete stranger. And people were putting up money. They said that Carl would be walking in the streets and people would just walk up to him and hand him money. Because they knew he needed it and they believed in him. In November 1940, at the Monroe County Courthouse in Key West... The case was dropped due to the fact that the statutes of limitation for the crimes committed had expired. Sounds about right. So Carl was a free man. Yes. How could we not still go with abuse of a corpse after that? That statute of limitations couldn't have expired. He was still abusing her corpse up to the day he was arrested. I don't know. Okay. I'm I'm so mad. They tried. There were lawyers coming in from everywhere. The case had started research and evidence and witnesses. Like, it was building up to be a huge case. And then all of a sudden, somebody's saying, Oh, by the way. By the way, every single crime we're trying to try him for, they looked at other crimes. Mm -hmm. Statute of limitations expired on every single crime they tried to charge him with. Yep. So, thousands of people start visiting Carl. 
once he gets out of jail, Mm -hmm. at his shed off of Flagler Avenue. He would show them around his home, and he'd show them around the plane, and he used the molds that he took of Elena's face to sell death masks to people that would visit. Sounds about right. He charged them a 25 admission fee to see his home in the plane, and he'd tell them the story of his love for Elena. People in return were telling him that he put Key West on the map. On April 14, 1941, Carl was evicted from the shed. I guess the real owners of it came and they were like, hey, this is ours. Hey, fucker, scram. He packed up a van with all of his possessions because at this point he's like a hoarder. Like he's got a ton of junk. So he packs up this van and he hires a a truck to transport the plane and says he's going to a farm owned by his sister in Zephyr Hills. And he said, quote, I hate to leave Key West for my Elena is buried here, but I will complete work on my plane someday and fly back here to be with her. She will be with me in spirit while I'm away. And I didn't note it, n- note it earlier because he lost it, but he did try to appeal for her body. But Of course he did. Less than five hours later, at 1.45 a.m., five hours after he left, an explosion blew away the front section of the vault. There was evidence of a time bomb and at least two sticks of dynamite. So as he's leaving Key West, he blows up his fucking tomb. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking dramatic. Elena's family did all succumb to tuberculosis and died young. In 1934, her father, Francisco Pancho Hoyos, and her sister, Celia Malago Hoyos Roque, passed away. Her mother, Aurora Safontes Hoyos, died in 1940. And her sister, Nana, who is Florinda Malago Hoyos Medina, died in 1944. Nana's husband, Mario, also died in 1944, but he died by electrocution trying to save a co-worker who had hit a power line with a crane at a construction site. Jesus, really? So the one that, like, didn't die of tuberculosis, he died the same year, like, trying to rescue somebody. Somebody else. But, I mean, the whole family died. Like, who knows if he would have gotten it anyway, but the whole family ended up dying of tuberculosis. So that's why, like, at the end of the story, only Nana's around for all of that. Yeah. Everybody else had passed away. Passed away. Carl moved to Pasco County near Zephyr Hills in 1944. His home was near his wife, Doris, who apparently helped to support him for the rest of his life. His autobiography first appeared in the pulp publication Fantastic Adventures in 1947. It was later made into the book The Lost Diary of Count Von Kozel. In 1950, Carl Tonsler Von Kozel received his official United States citizenship. Two years later, on July 23, 1952, Carl Tonsler passed away at the age of 75. His body was found on the floor of his home three weeks after his death. In his bed was a life-size doll made up of the molds he had taken of Elena. The doll was dressed in a bridal gown. His house was filled with junk, and there were pictures of Elena everywhere. Now, there's a lot of sources that say that it was actually Elena's body, but no, they disprove this. But, like, a lot of sources still do say it was her body. It it definitely wasn't. They They were just trying to be morbid. Yeah, yeah. Like, some people wanted that to be the end. Like, Mm -hmm. they made it, like, a romantic ending. Yes, like, in the end, they they got to be together. Yeah, but no, he took those molds, he made another doll of her... In 1972, two of the physicians that had attended Elena's autopsy said in an interview that there was evidence of necrophilia. Her breasts had been built up. They they described it, but I don't want to. So built up. Okay. And there was a tube inside her body. 
At the bottom of the tube was cotton that contained traces of semen. So they, what they said is the tube was in a, like, he would switch the cotton in and out, yes. like, as it, it was, whatever. We got you. And people were like, well, that can't be true, or else you would have said it at the trial in, in the 40s. And they're like, well, first of all, it didn't go to trial. Exactly. We would have. And second of all, we didn't say it in the papers back then because, like, that's not the way papers reported stuff back oh, then. No. That was not a detail. If we it was now, it would have been every gory right. detail. Yeah. So people are like, that's BS because you never told anybody. Well, they would have if it went exactly. to trial. But it didn't. It would have been in the court records. Although, <laughs> that poor transcriber. Can yeah, you imagine? That should have, it should have gone to trial. Anyway, Carl's wife, Doris Tonsler, lived until May 11th, 1977. And man, she was like a socialite. So back then, when you look at all the old newspapers, mm-hmm. like they tell you like who showed up for tea and who showed up for the <laughs> floral club. or She was at it. <laughs> she was there. She was everywhere. She was. And their remaining daughter, Aisha, who, by the way, I don't know when she did it, but at some point she started going by the name Anne. And I don't blame her. That was going to say, Maybe she started doing it when the memoirs came out. Who knows? Never mind this. But she went by the name of Anne. She lived until 1998. Nice. So she she lived like a long, happy life. A long life. Hopefully it was happy. And um, that's it. There were a couple books. I I read, like I said, I read three books. If you're going to read any of them, The Undying Love by Ben Harrison was probably the one that I enjoyed the most. Um, But the others were good, you know. But if you're only going to read one and you're interested in the story, I'd say read that one. But yeah, that's my case. That's, that was a lot. And as you could tell, I'm a huge fan of Carl now. Of course you are. God. I know I am. Well, it's, it's really, really hard to find the story without it being a love story. And a lot of people are, they're not focusing on the fact that he was a necrophiliac. And whether or not you consider that a mental illness and then people come out... I've seen people go, why are you going after a man? Like in the, the cases that are negative, people mm-hmm. are like, you're making fun of somebody who's mentally ill. Really? Because Ted Bundy was also a necrophiliac? <sighs> I just, I can't but with no, that one. Oh, I, I but don't I, think no. it's mental illness to the point but where I, you can't make fun of them or no, you can't no, no, no. say they were doing something wrong. I didn't wrong. say that for that reason. It's not I excusable. It, no, I, I didn't say it for that reason. I said it because if people were, were willing to overlook that that Carl was a necrophiliac, people were willing to overlook that Ted Bundy was a necrophiliac. Were they really? Yes. He went back multiple times to where he buried women in Washington State and would have intercourse with them. But no, the fact that people were willing to overlook it? Yes. All Why? the time. Because he was so hot. Oh, the people that like love people in jail. Yes. Or they were also willing to forget that he was a child molester. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll do that case one day. Oh, and you know we will because I know. this is the place where he sizzled. But but yeah, he sick story, and it, it's just it's so <laughs> like even the book I said to read. It's called Undying Love. Like, exactly. And don't get me wrong, I think Ben Harrison did a good job in a lot of places. But he could have named it something else. I mean, he really could have. Yeah the the full title is Undying Love: A True Story of Passion That Defied Death. And if you really want to see something interesting, go to the website. Also, go to our website because for this one, I found a bunch of pictures that were like public domain. <laughs> so I'm putting this story on our website, and I'm putting all my sources. There's a ton on the website, and the pictures that I came across because there's even a picture of him working on her body. Okay. Like, who the fuck took that picture? Frank. I'm sure there were self timers at that point, but if somebody took the picture, it had to be Frank. 
<laughs> fucking Frank. Oh, this poor Frank. Nobody's ever gone after Frank in any story I've ever heard. <laughs> but apparently we did. It's not even in my notes to go after this guy. But apparently we did. But anyway, if you look on our website at the sources, the titles of all the newspaper mm-hmm. articles, all but two or three Stock of them are like, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And she didn't. The sister's exact quote I don't have here, but it was something like she would tell him, no, you're an old man. You're old enough to be my grandpa. This is not happening. She'll come around. <laughs> well, that's the thing. She jilted him in life. Mm-hmm. So after she died, she had no say. Exactly. He just wanted her. Yep. And he got her for, for seven, seven years. years. Mm-hmm. It's, it's disgusting. So I urge everybody who ever tells this story in the future not to tell it from a love story perspective. (laughs) It's it's not. And since this episode was a little longer, but it was much appreciated, uh, we're just going to give you one handle, and that is to go to, as Renee said, fsccpod.com, where you can have a link to all our social media and, of course, pictures for this episode. And as always, may the juice be with you. Bye. Bye!